everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best murder she wrote podcast. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. Today we are talking about episode 214, Keep the Home Fries Burning, also known as the Strawberry Preserve episode. Uh, TJ, it's your turn to give a summary. All right. So in this episode, our beloved Seth, Amos, and Jessica go to have breakfast at a new diner, or I guess it's not really a diner, it's a new restaurant that is open in town that is threatening to put the local diner out of business. Unfortunately, things go quickly awry when a number of customers end up getting very sick from eating breakfast, one of whom actually ends up dying. And so Jessica has to determine who is responsible. And I'll go ahead and get the spoiler now. It turns out that the poison was in, as, as Bridget alluded to, the strawberry preserves. And we'll get into actually who did it and why as we make it through the episode. But uh, what did you think of this? I love this episode. Um, but Me too. I just have to say, you know, um, this episode is a real cautionary tale in maintaining food safety. It is definitely <laughs> a, a, a very big, very big about that. It's also the dangers of preserves. I'm a, I'm a jam person myself more than preserves, but what the know. hell is the difference? Oh, it's too complicated to get into right now. But okay. there's a, there's a significant difference between jam, jelly, and preserves. Well, jam and jelly, I knew because jelly is strained and jam has seeds. Right, and there's more fruit pieces in jam. Great, because jelly is strained, right? Right, and it's, I mean, jelly is just glorified preserves. Jam. Has bigger chunks of fruit in it. Like, it's, you know, much chunkier. Okay. But they're all... I mean, I thought preserves and jam were pretty much just synonyms. I mean, it's all just fruit you put in a pan with um, sugar and reduced down, right? Yeah, this is where my country roots are showing. Like, there are different kinds of, you know, jarred goods, as it were. (laughs) I do not participate in anything called canning. Nor do I own mason jars with detachable. Oh, God. listen lid to the pieces. listen That's to the contempt. Not. Listen to the contempt, like in the way <laughs> she's saying it. I don't own any canning jars. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> All right, climb down out of your ivory tower, princess. Like, pardon the hoi polloi among us who do have jams and jar jellies. I mean, j- jam and jelly jars. I'm big jam, but you know. Anyway. Moving on. We've completely gone off the rails already. We've gone off the rails. Amos, by the way, Amos Tupper, we learn in this episode, is allergic to strawberries. So he does not eat strawberry preserves. Also, who's allergic to strawberry? Like, I've heard, I mean, I've heard of some very strange. partner is allergic to onion. Like, talk about weird things to be allergic to. And I find that very strange. It's super strange. So I I still don't understand how you guys cook because every single recipe starts with heat a tablespoon of olive oil in a pan Add onion. I substitute or I just don't put it in. Yeah. That's a simple answer. Yeah. Well, poor and- Amos is allergic to strawberries. And uh, so all you girls out there thinking of sending him something because he's your sweetie pie, don't send him strawberries. Yes. And I have to say, I mean, I love this episode because I obviously love all the Cabot Cove episodes because I think they so perfectly capture like the cozy murder mystery ethos. Like in mm-hmm. everything about this episode captures that especially the conflict going on between the you know the the old diner and the new one and like Mm -hmm. i like that is just so quintessentially small town well at least small town television i don't know how much it actually happens in real life that you know some big chain moves in seems to happen pretty frequently but it is like another one of those interesting moments that is uh, i'm not sure if it's intentional but is historicist in the sense that like 
the 80s is sort of the big age of franchises putting small businesses out of business, which I know this because I was just writing an article about restaurants that no longer exist, many of which went out of business in the 80s. So I was just, this, this has been much on my mind. So when I saw this episode, I was like, oh, this is very relevant to what I've been working on. So for people who haven't seen the episode, you know, we have this tension between Dixon's Diner, which is the town diner, uh, and this new restaurant out by the interstate called the Joshua Peabody Inn, which is where the strawberry preserve poisoning happens. And everybody in town has stopped going to Dixon's Diner, and they're now going to the Joshua Peabody Inn. It's this really big building. It's on the coast. Uh, and then everything there is Revolutionary War themed, and the menu is all like really cheesy Revolutionary War puns like Eggs Benedict Arnold, which is probably an obvious one, but the others are much more clever. Um, the, the thing that sort of alarmed me, though, uh, and this tells you how much our society has evolved, but as they're walking in, you know, everything's American flags and the Murder, She Wrote theme song uh, gets played with like fifes and flutes, you know, so it sounds like it's from the 18th century. And then um, as they're walking in, there's a don't tread on me flag hanging on the building. Oh, I didn't notice that particular. Oh, that's yeah, that's, so that's, that's a choice. That's a cultural shift right there. Yeah. I mean, plus it's out of place. That's a Southern thing, not a... Like, what Yankee establishment would be having a tread on me stick? I guess, well, now that I think about it, I think it was sometimes used in the Revolutionary period, so that's probably what they're going for. That's where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't associate it with that sort of patriotism anymore. That's correct. It's associated with some other stuff. Which we'll get to in next week's episode. (laughs) (laughs) So, there's so much going on in this episode. And we have some... We have, as TJ said, you know, the plot, the actual plot is a woman murders her best friend for sleeping with her husband, which is, which is pretty simple, but it's complicated by um, the fact that we have the tension between the diner and the Joshua Peabody Inn. And so did the diner owner do it to put the inn owner out of business? We also have this chef who's pretends French. He's sort of French, right? Because his grandfather and his father are both famous chefs, but are Amer- like our American emigres, right? Isn't that the they they founded Nouvelle Cuisine? I mean, this is huge. So he's really pedigreed, and he's been plucked and like brought from France essentially to cook at the Josh at the Joshua Peabody Inn. Yet he has an American accent, but he has an American accent, and he just wants to go to Pittsburgh, and so he wants out of his contract. So he's not cooking. He puts like cinnamon on omelets, and he's being an asshole, drinking wine at breakfast on the job. Uh, and I mean, so that's very th- French. Does <laughs> so we think maybe he did it um, to get out of his contract? He wanted to close the inn down, and then we have these other like business guys who are arguing about like political kickbacks. <laughs> it really never goes anywhere, and of course. You know, my well, we get to the guest stars later, but then there's Alan Young, who is playing the the owner of the Joshua Peabody Inn. You know, so as you say, it's just a, there's for there's a lot going. For, on. I was gonna say for an episode that whose plot, as it turns out, is remarkably easy to solve. Like my partner and I actually figured out who did it very early on. As you say, there's just a lot of moving pieces that I think helped to make this a really scattered but strangely coherent episode and a very pleasurable one because all the pieces are mm-hmm. what, that we're familiar very with. Like, pleasurable. aside from everything else, we have Seth and Amos continuous, continually sparring with each other about everything from the existence of whether Joshua Peabody really was there, which is a callback to an earlier episode, to, like, Seth kind of poking fun at Amos's weight, which, you know, doesn't read very well circa 2022, but... Also, Seth is fatter than Amos. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and Amos, of course, like, 
gorging on breakfast food, which I mean, as a as a breakfast aficionado, I can appreciate the the love of a good breakfast. Like that read to me is very well, understandable. Since, you know, so that all happens in the openings. Like literally everything we've described is in the opening scene. So it's <laughs> this is a really dense episode, which I think you know we talk about why people love the Cabot Cove episode so much, and I think this is an example is because they're so richly textured. It really feels like a real place because there's so many moving parts and people and. Each of these people has their own story, um, and ultimately most of them don't even matter to this episode, which is, like, great. But while all this chaos in this opening scene is going on, maybe we can take a second to appreciate the our little favorite triangle. So Seth, like, forced JB to come here for breakfast, even though she's already had breakfast. And Amos, like, rolls up and is like, hey, can I just sit with you guys? And you have to wonder, like, doesn't he always feel like such a third wheel? Like, they did not invite him. I that, yeah. He's only sitting there because they're already there and there's no other tables. And I mean, one, my favorite line in this whole episode is where Amos basically says that he's like the, what is it, the food influencer of Cabot Cove. Oh, the food influencer is such a 21st century way of calling it. He says specifically, uh, where Shop- Sheriff Tupper goes, so goes Cabot Cove at least when it comes to food. And then Seth says, like, who is actually saying that? And he says, you know, everybody. And he walks away. And, and Jessica says, I must be traveling in the wrong circles. I've never heard anybody say that. And they crack up. Like, they're laughing behind it's, his back. It is so peak murder she wrote. Like, it is, like I said, it is just... <laughs> this is why I think... I mean, I, I stand by this assertion that 90% of murder she wrote's best episodes are the Cabot Cove ones. Just, just because... They are. They as you said so clearly earlier, like they can capture and really convey that sense of time and place and locale that feels real. And I also, I think because of that, it allows them to construct more coherent murder plots that actually make sense. And that's because they don't have to spend so much time on the other stuff. Like, on like the world building. Yeah, it's like, cause we know who this is and who these people are. It allows the, mm-hmm. like the actual murders to make sense. Like this is a murder plot that makes sense to me and is not sort of like inexplicable. And so I think that mm-hmm. that helps it, to, like, that's helps why I think it lands much more effectively than some other episodes do. Mm hmm. Yeah. I just, I love these, the three of them working together. I just think it's so funny. And I just, I really, in this episode, I just feel bad for Amos because I, he's such a third wheel <laughs> and ultimately not that important to the investigation. Right. So once we have this food poisoning outbreak, the state sends in an investigator. Uh, who's played by the inimitable Anne Francis, right. who we saw in the pilot episode, yep, that's, actually. Yep, when I couldn't remember her name, and you said, her name is Anne Francis, and her name deserves to be known, is what you believe. You'll never forget, because she has a, she's a line in Rocky Horror. And also, she's, you know, in Murder, or the Golden Girls. She's also in the Golden As Girls. True, no one will ever forget Trudy. Trudy McMahon, who is a, a, <laughs> another of, our, of my favorite podcasts, referred to her as having big flight attendant energy and i think that that is a very (laughs) accurate description even in this role where she is still like just so she's big big. like she is a force of nature like Like she walks into cabot cove and she is loud and she is a presence uh and she's investigating and rounds up all the food samples to have them tested and so really the investigation is her and Seth and Jessica is sort of helping Seth and Seth knows to trust Jessica but it has much less to do with Amos who is actually the person who should be investigating right. uh, it's kind of a kind of an interesting switch 
um, from how we normally investigate things because we don't actually know it is a murder for right. a while. It just seems like a case of food poisoning. Of botulism in particular. Yeah. But then Seth's like, something's not right here. Like, he's the one who actually sort of starts putting the pieces together that, you know, this is actually a different kind of poison because botulism would take longer to manifest. Yes. And so it must be atropine, which atropine. is another Agatha Christie, one of Agatha Christie's favorite poisons. Yep. Um, and what does he say? Like, red is a beet and mad is a hatter because it creates flushing and, and uh, delusions. Del- yeah. Like- yeah. From Belladonna. Yep. Atropine, yep. for those of you who want to uh, know your poisons. What I love, though, is how Anne Francis, as the quote-unquote scientist and the bureaucrat, you know, sort of stands in opposition to Jessica. I mean, she is, like, louder <laughs> than Jessica and, like, more forceful. And she keeps insisting that she's doing everything by science. And, of course, Jessica operates by intuition. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's at one point, she calls Jessica an amateur crisis hound, which is just... Like, that's hilarious. And also, like, nothing could be farther from the truth. Like, not, Jessica is n- neither amateur nor a crisis sound. Right. I love it. That was, it's, yeah, exactly. It's like, th- this is one of those episodes where I think the dialogue is simply sparkling. Like, there is, you know, it's one of those episodes where the writers were really feeling their oats in terms of being able to put good, like, talking together. Did you just say they were feeling their oats? Yes. How do you feel oats? Have you never heard? Oh, this is another one of those. I feel like you meant sowing their oats or feeling nope, something I, else nope, and you combine nope, two phrases. Nope, nope. I promise you it is feeling your oats. Yeah. Feeling your oats? Why the hell would you feel oats? I don't know, dear. It's an expression. It's a rural expression. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> okay. I mean, this. I, I'm not the only one who's used it. Dorothy says about Rose and the Golden Girls, I can't stand it when she's feeling her oats. Oh my god, you guys, he's going to use the Golden Girls to... Okay, alright, I see what you're doing. Let's move on. So, it clearly exists. It is It is not only, like, it's also contemporary to the time, <laughs> so I'm using it correctly. Okay. <laughs> anyway, as I was saying, the writers clearly have felt their... Feeling their oats during this writing session, because, like, I just love, as you, like, in that exchange with the, <laughs> the amateur crisis, I'm like, those are just... They're perfect gems of, of dialogue that I just think... Are what makes this show such a, a delight sometimes. Like, I, it's just a delight. Like, there's no other way to put it. Yeah. I'm gushing over here. <laughs> I think that, um, I don't know where to go with that. It's a delight. Yes. <laughs> but maybe we could talk, before we before we get into the murder, let's talk a little bit about the guest stars. I mean, obviously we have Anne Francis, but we also have, like, Orson Bean, who's a pretty well-known, like, screen presence. And I, Every time I see him, he is chewing the scenery for, like nobody's business. Like that man can just gnaw a scene from one end to the other, and I love every minute of it. Like he is just, I love it. I don't know what it, I don't know what there is about Orson Bean in particular, but I don't think I've ever seen him when he's just not exploding off the screen. It seems like I don't know that I necessarily agree that he is chewing the scenery. Um, I well, I never really understand what people mean by that anyway. I guess, but. He seems to me like, um, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> but anyway, we don't have to get... He's in it. He's great in it because he's worse than Bean and I love him. And he always plays that sort of cantankerous, sassy... Okay, we don't have to get too... F- we don't have to... But I, I, Alan Young, as I referenced earlier. And and that's the character he's playing. He's one of the business people arguing about the kickbacks or whatever that... like does, really It doesn't yes. even matter if we understand who they are and what they're arguing about because it never goes anywhere. Exactly. But of course, you know, arguably, from my point of view, the best guest star is Alan Young, who's playing the owner of the 
uh, Joshua Peabody in, who is, you know, obviously well known for a host of roles, but obviously from, um, oh crap, what's it called? Mr. Ed, I almost forgot. Oh. Um, but at this time, you know, he would have been playing Scrooge McDuck in DuckTales. Like, that's probably... Oh. Which is one of his most okay. iconic roles, which he played until his death in 2016, I should also point out. Like, the man did, like, was most famously, the most famous of all the Donald, or Scrooge McDuck voices. So, that's how I, I've always had a soft spot for him. I Okay, I didn't know why you were going on about him, because I, I didn't really know that about him. Yep. Because uh, for me, obviously, like, this episode... I, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, we blew our guest star budget on the last episode where we had like 100 people. Um, so all we could afford this time was Anne Francis. Well, clearly you're not giving, clearly you are not giving Alan Young his fair share, his fair shake. <laughs> yeah. And poor Orson Bean. I do like him. Uh, he was always my favorite part of Dr. Quinn. Oh, yes, that's right. Even though his, his character was very bad. Anyway. We should explain, Teach, about the, the whole thing. I mean, what I think is so clever about that opening scene that is just utter chaos is, like, what actually holds it together is that the camera keeps following. What do you call it? It's like this little carrier with two pots mm-hmm. of jam. One is orange marmalade and one is the strawberry preserves. And we see it being passed from table to table as different people are eating and asking for their checks and borrowing it from each other. And that's ultimately why we think there's a food poisoning outbreak and I, it's it's so gross. I got to tell you, like it's it's just like, disgusting to me. I also was deeply, deeply vexed by this. <laughs> you know, I'm not the you know I'm not a huge stickler for food yes. you know food safety stuff. But I mean, even I was like, so wait, everybody in this restaurant sharing is sharing the, the same, same pot that has no lid. Preser- I'm like, and- what? That everyone's dipping their spoons into. I'm like, what is happening? Yes. Well, there was a spoon with it. Yes, but who's... So hopefully they used that spoon, put it on their food, and did not touch it again. Have you met the people of Cabot Cove? Do they strike That's you That's what I'm a- saying. You know, there was a lot of double dipping. I mean, that is just vile. Ugh, I'm just like, you know, it's one thing to double dip when it's like a party of friends, which, you know, is questionable depending on the group of friends, but... For an entire, re- like, and it's a crowded restaurant. Like, there are a lot of people there. And the fact that it has no lid, you know, it has, like, spit in oh, it. It's and, like, I was just like, no. It's horrifying. And then it gets even worse because once the science lady played by Anne Francis is investigating, she's like, okay, well, where, what's the origin of this jam? And Jessica's like, oh, it's like some little old lady who makes it and gives it to the restaurant. And, her, and she just, like, makes it in her home kitchen. Horrifying. Horrifying. I mean, like I said, it's one thing to eat jam that like your family makes, like because I just got jam for my father while I was home. But it's quite another to have that distributed to a restaurant, a public facing restaurant. Like that seems like a deeply questionable food practice for a you know for an actual certified restaurant. This is actually a trend now. Have you heard this where you can like um, hire people to make meals for you in their home kitchen? I. It's a new thing that like started taking off during the pandemic. And then you just like, they package them up as like takeout meals for you or like meal prep them for you. Um, but I think again, like the point is it raises all these concerns about food safety because the reason you're, you get food from a restaurant and there is like the restaurant people all have to have licenses. They have to have a certificate in food safety. I had one once because I worked at Target and I was a manager and we had a Taco Bell in our Target. And so we all had to have food safety licenses, right? And he wasn't even handling the food. And, and 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 there's inspections of the kitchen that happen in a restaurant where the health inspector comes and makes sure it's clean and not gross. And so if this old lady is like making stuff at home and then selling it to the restaurant, it's just, 
Anyway, this is legal. You can do that. You can, and you can sell it in grocery stores if it's small batch in some states. Cause you could, cause in Ohio, you could, um, go to the grocery store and buy stuff people made in their kitchen as long as they only sold like so many packages per week or something. But <laughs> ew, just ew. <laughs> I'm not ew. quite as repul- I'm not quite as repulsed <laughs> by that part as my, my more. <laughs> refined counterpart over here Uh, the princess in her ivory tower who has such contempt for canned goods to start with my my major issue is with a lidless pot of jam being shared among a whole full of whole restaurant full of customers that to me is the bigger issue than a small batch of than a little old lady making strawberry preserves for the locals like that seems to me rather less vexing than the open jar of preserves you didn't I mean they neglect they cut out the part where Jessica said she had five cats too yeah. Now are you gross? No, because my parents have like 20 cats and I still eat their jam. <laughs> so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> okay. I'm going to move on from my obsession with how gross this is. Good. Uh, so let's talk about the- <laughs> So we can talk about Let's talk about the murder since that, I mean, that is arguably the focal point of this whole thing. Um, okay. Because I, you know, as I have alluded to before, I did, I, as soon as this happened, I was like, I thought perhaps it was the friend and her, you know, the two friends who were vacationing that one of them was responsible for the other's death. And that, mm-hmm. and as it turns out, I was right. <laughs> so, Especially since they're like the visitors. Yes. So we don't have as much stake. It's usually the visitors who are involved in the murders in this series. Right, exactly. And I I've, I wouldn't say that I understood or uh, let me put this differently. I didn't approve of the decision to kill the best friend for having an affair. But let's be real, like... When it comes to motives, that's a pretty good one. Like, you know, to find out that your best friend has been having an affair with your husband and that both of them have been concealing it. I can't, you know, I gotta admit, I would be tempted. Not that I would actually do it, but you know. No, because she's so stupid. Because Wilhelmina, the blonde who murders her best friend, Betty. What a name, right? Wilhelmina. I know. Why did they pick? That's really weird that they picked that. And and I think it's interesting, too, that she's the wife. She's the blonde. And I think more conventionally attractive. Um, and Betty's a brunette and less conventionally attractive, but actually that's the one the husband was having the mm-hmm. affair with. So there's something really interesting going on there. But I, Wilhelmina is really stupid because her plan is to murder Betty so she can get her husband back. But her husband's just going to be sad that his lover died. And then God forbid he ever finds out she did it, he'll never forgive her. So this is a really stupid plan. Well, it's stupid, but it's driven by passion, which is explicable. Like. Mm. I can understand why someone, you know, when you're think when you're in that kind of emotionally overwrought state, you're not always thinking rationally. Like you're thinking rationally enough to plan a murder, but not enough to like be like, if I do, if I do this, my hu- by the way, this is going to make my husband hate me for the right. rest of my life. I mean, especially the exact opposite of what well, I wanted. Listen, I mean, to do. it sounds, if, you know, if if it appeared to be botulism, like, and she just got the dosage wrong just slightly, like, if if she assumed that it would look like botulism, yeah. then. There would be no reason to think her husband would ever discover the truth. She did do her homework. Yeah. Anyway, ultimately, like, she gives herself – she she eats a little of the, the tainted strawberry preserves, too, so that she gets sick. Therefore, there's less suspicion on her. And, and it's intended also to evoke sympathy from her husband. Like, oh, you just had a close call. Yeah. Now I love you more. Also, the husband is a dick, like, for having an affair <laughs> and then keeping it from his wife – and I'm not too sympathetic for the best friend either. I don't think she deserved to die necessarily, but I'm not very sympathetic for her either going on a trip with her friend while having an affair with her husband. Like that's it's really, really messy. messed up. It's really messy. Yeah. Like, and so, you know, Jessica figures this whole thing out because um, 
she's weirdly in the hospital room when the wife is, you know, told that her best friend died and the husband, and but she's getting out of the hospital. She's fine. And the husband's like turns to the window and he's all broody. And they're like, yo, we just said your wife is fine. Why are you so upset? So that seems suspicious, right? She's, he's too cut up about the best friend and not mm-hmm. happy about his wife. And Jessica also talks to the chef who's like, oh, I saw this guy peeking in the restaurant and it turns out it was the husband uh, and right. he had been peeking in the restaurant so that he could talk to Betty because Betty's been pressuring him to, you know, like, we got to tell the wife. And he's like, please don't do it right now. And she's like, no, we're on a trip together. We're having a great time. So Betty clearly still loves her f- best friend, even as she's sleeping with her best friend's husband. It's messy. It is messy. I mean, I mean, that's that's what makes it so compelling. Like, that's what makes it feel more real real than a lot of other murder cases like this seems like something that would actually happen that you would, might actually re like watch on an e- episode of investigation discovery or something yeah like, i mean you know, like and they're all because they're all three like flawed people in some way and they all three make bad choices in some way yep so that feels more human than just like the one purely evil person and the innocent person i think is what you mean yeah and you can tell that even from the way that wilhelmina looks at her husband like you can like there is a sort of like a rawness to the emotional performance that I think really does speak to how betrayed she is, but how she still loves him anyway. And yeah. I think obviously and she's so I don't desperate she... for him to love her back. Yep. You can see Which it is... on her face when she's getting out of the hospital. Like there's just this yep. sort of desperation in her eyes. And I thought that the uncovering of the, of the crime was pretty well done as well. Like, you know, that Jessica realizes that she'd already given her a tip on the credit card. And so when she said she was going back, to give the tip she was really going back to get the preserves jar which she then hid in her purse which this is why they need lids for these jam- for these preserve jars like none of this would another reason why they need because then of course she- because the jam spilled all over it- her white suede which purse which she threw then out had to throw out and jessica noticed that she no longer had that purse but she had her friend's purse i gotta tell you though teach i think that that um, there was a lot going on in that diner. It was chaos. It was packed full of people. It was loud. I think the odds of Jessica overhearing that conversation, remembering it, and remembering what purse some random stranger happened to have that day seems pretty slim to me. I don't know. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give JB credit for this. If anybody could remember that level of detail, it would be JB Fletcher. Like she's always looking and always listening. So okay, she sounds like the Panopticon. <laughs> <laughs> J.B. Fletcher, Panopticon. <laughs> She's big brother. <laughs> That's what someone should do. They should make her, you know, the big brother is watching you me yes. from 1984. They should do it with, like, Jessica's face. So what I like about this episode, though, is despite, like, this sort of messy, you know, interpersonal triangle that is actually just really sad because nobody's right and nobody's wrong and nobody's good and everything sort of ends awfully. Um the episode does do a classic Murder, She Wrote happy end for us, where the Joshua Peabody Inn is now closed because, like, you can't really get over the bad PR of food poisoning turning into a murder. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dixon's Diner has happily reopened, and they're all having breakfast at Dixon's Diner. Mm-hmm. And I love that last shot where they're all lined up at the bar, like, eating. Like, that is just a... just It's... It's They're a, like one by one in the stools at the counter. It's a lovely little grace note. And I haven't, didn't use that last episode, so I have to use it this time. It's like a lovely little grace note of like Americana. Like they're just, it just feels so quintessentially 1980s American restaurant. Yeah. Like I love that image. It's very, it's, it seems like an image designed to both be nostalgic at the time, 
And it feels nostalgic now, like as we look at that image and it's evocative of a period that no longer exists. It's also, I think it's just fun because it's all of them again. And, you know, um, Dixon's happy. He's got his diner back. The waitress is happy. She's working at the diner. She didn't lose her job. And then Floyd, who was running to the Joshua Peabody Inn, he's not out of business. He's going to Vermont to open the Ethan Allen Inn. Yep. <laughs> um, so it's like everybody ends up happy, you know? And then the the cute part is that you know, Seth makes one more dig at Amos by saying, well, at least Ethan Allen was a real person, you know, so we get one more <laughs> is Joshua Peabody real dig at the end of the episode and everybody laughs. And so it just, oh, it's so great. It's just like, it's good old times in Cabot Cove. I mean, because I think that's one of the things that I, you know, I've, and I've said this on the show before, but I'll, it bears repeating, like, this is one of those moments and one of those episodes that like, you just feel good having watched. I know that's still strange to say after having watched it, you know, a deeply sad marriage fall apart and murder yes but 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 it's not anybody we care about that's you know that's why but we you know we end this episode feeling pleasant like it's a very deeply pleasant experience to watch this episode yeah absolutely and i think there's value in that kind of comfort watching oh yeah yeah this is a good one so if you guys want um comedy you want chaos you want Seth, Jess, and Amos, this is a good one. With a little bit of melodrama thrown in there, it's perfect. (laughs) The melodrama being Amos thinking that he has food poisoning when he absolutely doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And of course, the you know, the affair. (laughs) (laughs) Who cares about them anyway? They were from out of town. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And of course, um, Anne Francis. Absolutely. Who is everything. She is everything. (laughs) A true force of nature, as I said. So that's probably a good place to end. Yep, seems like uh, it. Next week, we will go from the way down east and way up north to the deep south. Yep. Uh, and I am dreading that geographic shift. But for now, <laughs> uh, this is the Cabot Cove Gazette, and I'm Bridget Keys. And I'm TJ West, and I'm going to go eat some home fries, inspired by this title. <laughs> See you next time, you guys. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.